listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Another resurrection story for this, the third Sunday in Eastertide. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Well, they were talking about this. They being the disciples and the others who were with them, and this being a rather wild story that two of those others had just breathlessly recounted. We were on the road to Emmaus. A stranger joined us as we walked. The way he talked about the law, the prophets, set our hearts on fire. When we got to Emmaus, We asked him to stay for a meal. He took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to us. And then we saw who it was. The women weren't dreaming about when they talked about an empty grave. We swear he's alive. And as those two reel out their story, suddenly Jesus is there with them, offering his greeting of peace. Their response They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. But hadn't they just heard the story told by those two who'd rushed back from Emmaus, a story that must have at least given some credibility to what the women had said about the tomb being empty? What's with this terrified response, this talk of a ghost? Frankly, they're just not able to connect all that has happened. They're still staggering from the shock of Jesus' execution, still coming to grips with the fact that what they've been living for for the past few years had come to a violent end. Further, they knew all too well what crucifixion did to a body. They knew that after a dead body was taken down off a cross, there wasn't much left intact. So if they are seeing someone or something that looks and sounds like Jesus, it's got to be a ghostly spirit detached from that battered and broken body. In the Jewish world of the first century, that's a frightening aberration to see a spirit not embodied. It's almost an abomination. For in the Jewish view, human life was by definition embodied life. To be human was to be a body-soul, tightly, intimately intertwined. The Jewish worldview had no sense that when a person died, their spirit would go drifting off to some better place that it was freed from its tired or worn or broken body. No sense that a person's spirit went wafting off to heaven, in other words. No, in that Jewish worldview, when someone died, they were dead. In the view of the Sadducees, a party that sort of appears now and then in the Gospels, in the view of the Sadducees, that was the end. The only life that lived beyond your life was that of your children, your grandchildren, your heirs. Full stop. 
For the Pharisees and for other schools of thought within Judaism, there was thought to be a future beyond Sheol, the place of the dead. For in the end, God would raise up the righteous dead in the resurrection life. But that was thought to be a future event on the horizon when the whole kingdom was brought in. Either way, either this view of the Sadducees or view of the Pharisees, either way in the world in which Jesus and his followers lived, to think in terms of a spirit detached from its body was to be dealing with something frighteningly out of order, something ghostly. So now we hear the deeper significance of how the story unfolds. When Jesus said to them, Why are you frightened? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. In other words, what he's saying is that broken, battered, nothing left of it body that was laid in the tomb is actually what they're seeing, filled with life again. Touch me and see, my life is a fully embodied one. If you look at my hands and my feet, you'll even see the scars left by the nails. Touch and see. And when Jesus had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Yet as Luke describes the scene, he still notes that in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering. Still. Are they that thick-headed, those disciples? No. It's just that this is something that really is, for them, quite unbelievable. Yes, we see the scars, and maybe one of the group is even brave enough to reach out and touch him. But in Emmaus, you'd been seen with those two companions, and then gone. And here, here, you didn't even have to open the door. You were just with us. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? Here's what amounts to the gold standard demonstration that you're not dealing with a disembodied spirit, not dealing with a ghost. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it in their presence. Now I suspect this is more than just a proof that they're not facing a ghost. For all the way through the Gospels, and most especially all the way through Luke's account, the sharing of food has a massive significance. Whether it's to give Zacchaeus, the tax collector, a dignity he'd never even dreamed of, or a context to engage Simon the Pharisee in a conversation, or as an occasion to enact the abundance of the loaves and fishes, or as a gift of remembrance with bread and wine. In Luke's view, the act of eating together, sharing food, is so often a moment of grace. And the grace in this moment is that they stand peaceably in the presence, not of a ghost, not of a merely spiritual Jesus, but of the resurrected Christ. Zen T. Wright puts it, Here they finally saw that Jesus had gone through death and out the other side into a new mode of life. 
This new mode, write notes, seems to have involved his physical body being transformed so that it was now inhabiting both our space and God's space. Something naturally enough difficult to describe. Good theology, though, right rather wryly notes, requires good imagination on our part, but also on the part of those first witnesses. So what does it finally mean for them to stand in the presence of this Jesus who inhabits both our space and God's space, who is, in other words, with them, touch me, see, touch me, give me some fish to eat, I'm a little hungry, yet God's space because doors no longer limit him, time and space no longer limit him. What does it mean that he inhabits both of those zones? Well, firstly, it means that they need to keep telling the story. For he commissioned them to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Repentance, in Greek, metanoia which means a transformative turning around, which yields forgiveness of sin, a healing of the distortion and disfiguring of what we were intended to be. Tell resurrection. Tell it. Live it out. Do it. Be it. That's his message to them. And do it and tell it and be it in a way that others will catch the vision. Secondly, though, it means that in Jesus, the risen Jesus, resurrected Christ, they have seen their own future, our future. What happens for Jesus at that particular point in time and history reveals what is promised for all people. That's what Paul means when he writes in his first letter to the Corinthians that, quote, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died, the first fruits, the sign of what's to come. He has forever kicked open the door between death and new life. And in God's time, it is, it is through that door that we will all safely pass. Or, to borrow a phrase from Robert Ferrer Capon, our deaths are hid safe in the death of Jesus. What they see in the resurrected Christ is their future. This is a blessed assurance, as the old hymn of that title would put it. We actually sang that hymn yesterday at the funeral for my brother's mother-in-law who died at the age of 93 and was quite utterly at peace with her life and her God. It was good to be able to sing blessed assurance out of the full confidence of the resurrection to eternal life. That 93-year-old woman's confidence made us all a little more confident but you know, even a blessed assurance that our own deaths are safe in the death of Jesus is by no means an excuse for a sentimental or narrowly me and Jesus version of religious faith. For one thing, the disciples are told, now you go tell it, live it, be it, tell it, 
set that thing on fire. But I'm also struck by the comments of Jacob Myers in his consideration of this resurrection account. Jesus says, look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. His pierced body bears witness against a mode of discipleship that does not endure scars on behalf of others. Listen to that again. His pierced body bears witness against a mode of discipleship that does not endure scars on behalf of others. His pierced and scarred body, in other words, alerts us to the truth that in our own lives as a death-resurrection people, we may well find some wounds and scars on our own hands and feet. Literal scars, metaphorical scars, but scars all the same. Scars endured on behalf of others, as Jacob Myers phrases it. Yet even over those scars... The risen Jesus proclaims, peace be with you. It is a deep and empowering peace of which we are invited to drink deeply. Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia, amen. been listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.